0: Verses 1 to 11. Isaiah chapter 6, verses 1 to 11 should come up on your screens. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face, and with And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? This is the word of God. You know, um, to be awfully honest with you, um, as I prepared to speak to you this morning, as I prepared throughout this week, there was this persistent inadequacy that I sensed, that I felt plagued me this whole week. Not that, I, not that I ever really feel adequate to preach to you from God's word, but particularly so this week, particularly so this week. I mean I mean, who am I, Who am I a mere maggot, to speak about the holiness of God? Who are we, mere creatures, to even dare catch a glimpse of the holiness of God? and so friends today, let me Remind us all that we are approaching sacred ground. As such, let's stop now and bow our heads in a time of prayer. Heavenly Father, gracious God, O oh holy God, we pray that you would meet with us today, Lord. We pray that you would meet with us. We pray that you would reveal to us in a fresh way your glory. We pray that you would meet with us, Lord. We pray that you would not let us walk away unchanged from an encounter with you. We pray that you would meet with us, Lord. We pray that you would even wound us to then heal us, Lord. Meet with us, we pray. In Christ's name we plead. Amen. Let me, um, let me rewind the clock back to the 1990s. In the mid-1990s, I was about eight years old, and uh, our family, we were on holiday uh, to Hong Kong at that point in time, and we were staying uh, in uh, in my uncle and auntie's apartment uh, in Hong Kong, and every day we would go out and then come back to their apartment, which was on uh, the 30th floor of this apartment block. And I would vividly remember we would enter into the uh, lobby on the ground floor, we would say hi to the security guard, we would call for the lift, and then we would press the 30 button in the lift. So on any, ga- on, on any day we would go out, we'd go out shopping, we'd go out to eat, but then we would return from that day of shopping or eating and we would enter the lobby, we'd say hi to the security guard, we will call for the lift and we will press the 30 button. So in my mind, it seemed pretty clear, pretty obvious to me that we were living on the 30th floor, right? I intellectually knew the fact that we were living on the 30th floor. But the question was, did I truly grasp what it meant to be living on the 30th floor of that apartment? Did I truly grasp that? Well, not really. Not really. Not until... One day, when I walked out onto the balcony, I walked out to the, onto the balcony uh, of this thirtieth floor apartment, and I remember walking towards, you know, the, the banister. Only then did I really begin to know what it was and how far up thirty floors was from the ground below. You know, there was this strange sensation; I was attracted towards the edge yet at the same time, awfully terrified of it. I slowly uh, stepped up onto this small edge, ledge. I stepped up onto it, and I, I put my hands over the banister, kind of leaned over this banister, and then I looked directly down. I looked directly down. As you can imagine... The height was just dizzying, dizzying, and possibly because of the sheer awe of seeing how far I was from the ground. I lost my grip upon a toy that I was holding in my hand. I lost my grip upon a toy in my hand, and I watched it just slip from my hands. Falling, tumbling, tumbling, tumbling. It fell so far that at some point in time, I failed to even identify it. It was smaller than a dot in my eye. So far was I from the ground that there was no sound as the the toy hit the ground below. No sound. Just the unceasing howl. Of the wind at 30 floors high. My knees went utterly weak. A shiver went down my spine. A a cold sweat probably broke out upon my neck. And a shriek from my mother rang forth as she realized what had just happened then. And only then did I really know what it meant to be living on the 30th floor. Then and only then did I understand just how far I was from the ground below. But friends, if the dread of 30 floors of height can give a young boy weak knees and sweaty palms, how much more the infinite distance between a depraved man and holy God? You see, friends, the word holy, the word holy, kadosh, in Hebrew, literally means set apart, set apart. It derives from the ancient word that means to cut or to to separate. The holiness of God means that he is set apart, that he is so distinctly separate that he is a cut above the rest. Simply put, the distance between him and us is terrifyingly, immeasurable. Now normally when we, when we think about God's holiness, we think of him being set apart in terms of his moral qualities, right? And this is undoubtedly true. He is indeed set apart from us in his moral purity and his moral perfection. He is free from even the shadow of the stain of sin. God does not conform to his own moral standard because he is by his very nature the moral standard. But not only is God's holiness limited to his morality, God's holiness touches every part of his nature. It is an attribute of attributes. This is what R.C. Sproul writes, when the word holy is applied to God, It does not signify one single attribute. On the contrary, God is called holy in a general sense. That is, the word holy calls attention to all that God is. It reminds us that his love is holy love. His justice is holy justice. His mercy is holy mercy. His knowledge is holy knowledge. His spirit is holy spirit. Oh, friends, how incalculable is the distance between a holy God and vile humanity? But friends, I I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. You can intellectually grasp all that I've just said about the holiness of God. In fact, you could recite what every theologian has ever written on the doctrine of the holiness of God and yet still not grasp this truth. As Isaiah testifies to us in today's passage, to, to grasp the sheer beauty and terror of his holiness, it must be seen. It must be experienced. The very essence of God's holiness is by nature, never just truth alone. It is always truth on fire. It is impossible for this truth just to reside in some compartment of our minds, but a genuine reckoning with what it means that God is holy necessitates that our entire being be consumed by its flaming glory. And friends, herein lies the gross inadequacy of the preacher that stands before you. It is not in my power to grant you this experience. No, only God and God alone, by his holy, sovereign will, can grant you this true experiential knowledge of his holiness. But what I will feebly attempt to do today, by God's help, is to describe to you what an encounter with a holy God looks like through the eyes and through the testimony of Isaiah. Through the eyes and through the testimony of Isaiah, after which I will outline three authenticating experiences or three pieces of evidence of a life that has had a genuine encounter with the Holy God. Overall, overall, at the end of the day, if there is one thing that I pray will weigh heavy upon our souls today, it is that you cannot, you cannot have an encounter with a holy God and walk away unchanged. You cannot have an encounter with a holy God and walk away unchanged. So to start with today, let's take a look at what an encounter with a holy God actually looks like. What does it look like? Isaiah writes in his introductory words, in the year that King Uzziah died. Now, this is, a, this is quite a strange way for someone to begin a testimony. Much more conventional would it have been if, if Isaiah simply wrote, in the year that King Jotham began to reign. But he doesn't. He doesn't write that because unfolding before his very eyes is the reality of the utter distinction between a dying man and the living God. King Uzziah was actually the second longest reigning king out of all the monarchs of both Judah and Israel. He reigned for 52, 52 prosperous years, four generations of people called him king. He had building projects that were successful, and he raised up a military that was mighty. And yet, despite all of this, he dies. He dies whilst the Lord sits unmoved, unfazed, unmoved, unfazed upon his heavenly throne. And so in the very first verse, we are confronted with the holiness, the set-apartness, the infinite distance between fragile man and an unchanging God. And therefore, it is fitting then for Isaiah to continue that the Lord was high and lifted up. He is exalted. In other words, the Lord is holy. He is set apart like none other in his transcendence. And yet at the same time, Isaiah also sees the train of his robe or the the hem of the Lord's robe fill the earthly temple. As we know, the temple is the, the meeting place between God and man. Yes, the Lord is indeed high and lifted up, yet not at the expense of him being close and near. He is both transcendent and imminent. He is both infinitely set apart and intimately close. In other words, he is holy. He is like none other in both his distance and his nearness. Then Isaiah noticed the seraphim waiting upon the Lord like servants waiting upon their master. You know, the word seraph literally means burning ones, burning ones. Like the burning bush of Moses, the seraphim are close enough to the Lord, to the holiness of the Lord, that it sets them ablaze and yet the Lord sustains them so they are not consumed. They have six wings, two with which to cover their face, for even even they, in their moral purity, must not pry into the divine, two with which to cover their feet in humility, and only two with which to sustain themselves and fly. And continuously they sing, Holy, Holy, Holy Is the Lord of hosts. The earth is full of his glory. Now, in Hebrew, um, the repetition of a word is an expression of that word in the highest of terms. So, for example, if you see written uh, in Hebrew, gold, gold, it's not a typo. They meant to write gold, gold, because it literally means golden gold or or pure gold. Thus, for Isaiah to hear, holy, 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 three times, would be absolutely mind-blowing. It would not just be holy holiness or, 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 say, pure holiness, but it would be holiness raised to the power of three, holiness cubed. Put in another way, the seraphim cannot help but proclaim that from every angle, from every aspect, from every position, in every dimension, the complete depth and height and length of God's nature is holy, 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 that he is set apart, that he is incomparable through and through and through again. Furthermore, holiness and glory Holiness and glory are two sides of the same coin. To put it simply, glory is manifest holiness. Glory is manifest holiness, or glory is revealed holiness. And so when the seraphim declare that the whole earth is full of his glory, they are proclaiming that from whatever vantage point on earth, there is not a square inch of all creation that does not proclaim his manifest holiness. But it doesn't stop there. We see from Revelation 4 that they don't stop proclaiming this. The seraphim do not find it fitting just to declare this once. Instead, they cannot help but proclaim this truth again and again. And again to one another, like a chorus that transforms into a pre-chorus bridge to again usher back in the chorus in an unending loop, ever rising in intensity, but never reaching the audible climax fitting enough to do full justice to the truth proclaimed. They sing holy, 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 so intense are the seraphim's cries that it shakes the foundations of the temple doors. Even inanimate objects quake at the presence of a holy God. And now the whole temple fills with smoke. The temple's smoke infusion, the intensity of the angelic proclamation, the trembling of the temple's foundations. Friends, there was surely not a doubt in Isaiah's mind that he was now facing a personal Mount Sinai situation. Mount Sinai, where the Lord descended in fire and smoke. Mount Sinai, where the mountain trembled at his presence. Mount Sinai, where the Lord thundered and the trumpets sounded. Mount Sinai, where the Lord revealed his moral holiness in the Ten Commandments. Mount Sinai, where the Lord warned the people to come no closer, lest he break out in his holy, righteous anger. Church, is it? any surprise that the only fitting response to this devastating encounter with the holiness of God is for Isaiah to simply cry out, woe is me. Friends, this is the first of three experiences that result from a Genuine encounter with the Holy God. It is the experience of being brutally honest about who we really are. Brutally honest about who we really are. You see, as much as an encounter with the holiness of God reveals, of course, His surpassing excellencies and greatness, it also simultaneously reveals to us the utter vileness of who we really are. I mean, we've all experienced this at some point in our lives, haven't we? We go to some social gathering or maybe some work setting and there is someone there that is palpably or noticeably more beautiful than we are or more handsome than we are or more intellectual than we are or more skillful than we are or more successful than we are and immediately we feel exposed. How much more so when we encounter the holiness of God. But it doesn't just stop at being exposed. Isaiah actually says the words, woe is me for I am lost. Woe is me for I am cut off or silenced, or as the King James Version puts it, woe is me for I am undone. I am like unraveled. I am literally coming apart at the seams. I am disintegrating. I am being uncreated in this moment. You see, to pronounce woe upon someone is no small matter, is it? It's basically a pronouncement of God's judgment and curses upon someone. But that's exactly what happens when we have a genuine encounter with the holiness of God. When we come into the blazing light of His holiness, every, every one of our actions is seen in the context of our impure motives, the wretchedness of our hidden agendas, the emptiness of false pretenses, and even the best of our intentions are revealed as corrupt. We cannot help but come to the end of ourselves and agree that the only thing That we are worthy of is nothing but his holy judgment upon our lives. This is exactly, if you remember, what happened when Peter begrudgingly lets down the nets again at Jesus' request, but then pulls up this phenomenal catch of fish. Do you remember that? As soon as that happens, this is what the Gospel of Luke tells us. But when Simon saw it, he fell down. He fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. Get away from me. I'm a sinful man, O Lord. You see, Peter instantly recognized that he was in the presence of the Holy One. There was no hiding. There 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 was no mask to put on. He was instantly exposed as a sinful man. And the only thing that Peter felt fit to do as he realized the infinite chasm that separated his own vileness and a holy God was to request that the Lord depart from him, was basically to request upon himself the curse of being utterly separated from God. Oh, friends, I I know. I know just how tempting it is to look sideways, to look sideways and to think, not that bad, am I? You know, perhaps even this morning, your kids were running riot at home. But you, my friend, you managed to lovingly come alongside them and, and talk to them, while your spouse, on the other hand, just absolutely loses it at them. Then on the drive to church, the traffic light turns orange. You gladly and calmly just ease onto the brakes. You're not in a rush. You come to a stop while the car next to you zooms right past and probably runs the red. You get to church at 10 past nine. You've got 10 minutes to spare before the start of welcoming. But even at 9.30, you can't see a soul from the rest of your GC. (laughs) By 9.50, you've single-handedly welcomed every newcomer. You've mopped up a spill in the hallway. You checked in all your kids. You've joined pre-service prayer, and now you're sitting there Silently preparing your heart for worship. Oh, how easy it is on days like that to look to our left, to look to our right, and think, I'm not that bad. Well, at least I'm not that as bad as him, not as bad as her, I'm not as bad as them. In fact, this probably was Isaiah's experience as well. In just the preceding chapter, in chapter five of Isaiah, he assesses the people around him in Judah. And he actually prophesies. This is the word of the Lord. He prophesies, woe to those who join house to house. In other words, those who are greedy for land. Woe to those who rise early in the morning and run after strong drink. In other words, the drunkards. Woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. In other words, those who attract, intentionally attract sin into their lives. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes. Woe to those who are heroes. At drinking wine, six woes he pronounces on the people around him. But but when he has a personal encounter with the holiness of God, he cannot help pronounce the final and seventh woe upon himself. You know, the truth is every man and his dog is able at some point in their lives to climb on top of some moral high horse and pronounce the first six woes upon society around them but only a person that has a genuine encounter with the holy god would recognize that that set of woes is incomplete until that seventh and final woe points right back at ourselves I mean, look at what Isaiah goes on to say. This is what Isaiah goes on to say. He goes, I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell. He's now associating himself with them. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Now, do you notice something very odd about what Isaiah has just said? And the fact that he is a prophet. Isaiah is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's a man of God, and yet he declares that he's got unclean lips. It's like a surgeon coming and saying to the whole world, I am a man of unclean hands. You see, friends, a prophet's work, his best work, his highest honor are the words that proceed from his lips. And the truth is, friends, we all have one area of our lives where we are tempted to point to and to say, Herein lies my righteousness. Herein lies my appeal to God that I am not that bad. Maybe it's the fact that you are highly respected in your workplace. Maybe it's the volunteer work that you do. Maybe it's the fact that you have successfully parented all your adult children Maybe it's the fact that you've been drug-free or porn-free for some time now. Maybe it's because you have diligently kept up with your daily devotionals. Maybe it's because you are very effective in your ministry area. Or maybe it's simply the fact that your attendance at church is well above the mediocre Sydney average of 68%. Don't get me wrong. These are all good things in and of themselves. But the moment that we start to lean upon these things, For our righteousness, we are deceived. You see, friends, the truth is not only does the holiness of God reveal the sin that we must repent of, but it also reveals the self-righteousness that we must repent of as well. This is how Timothy Keller puts it. It should come up on the screen. The holiness of God shows us not just the seriousness of our sin, but the sinfulness of our seriousness of even your best efforts, of even your most moral efforts. You see, friends, the first authenticating experience of an encounter with a holy God is the experience of being really honest about who we really are. That before a holy God, there is nothing in our hands that we can possibly bring. An encounter with the holiness of God firstly brings this devastating experience of honesty about who we really are, but afterwards, it also brings the experience of honesty about what we really need. You see, when you come to the honest realization of who we really are, there is absolutely nothing we can say except, Woe is me! Depart from me, Lord! At this point, we are at the end of the road, we're out of options. We've got nothing to offer, no further appeal, no further recourse. But the Lord, this is where the Lord acts, but the Lord in his holy mercy does not leave us here. He breaks us to restore us. He empties us to fill us completely. He wounds us to heal us. He pulls away to then come closer than ever before. And we see this in the way the Lord meets Isaiah, with his holy grace and holy mercy. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken, from, taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Church, look at the direction of action. Isaiah, he doesn't run to the seraphim. He does not throw himself before the throne. No, the seraphim at the command of God flies to Isaiah. The action always flows from divine to mortal, from heaven to earth, from pure to profane. Friends, just like a, a river that always flows downhill, the direction the streams of mercy and grace always flow are from God to us, never the other way around no matter how hard you run, no matter how hard you try, you can do nothing to bridge the infinite chasm between you and a holy God. Nothing. You see, friends, an encounter with the holy God brings us to the honest admission that our deepest need can only be met by divine initiative. Not by our hands somehow reaching up, but by God himself coming down ultimately fulfilled when Jesus came to earth, when the word became flesh and dwelt amongst us. But you know, our need is not just for the Lord to come down, as much as that is true, but our honest need is for the Lord's holy touch in our lives. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. You know, there is something universally understood by the sensation of touch. In a single touch lies the unspoken communication that someone is for you and with you. In a single touch lies the unspoken communication that someone is for you and with you. Just consider how the holy touch of the Lord Jesus lifted Peter's mother, mother-in-law's fever or how his touch gave sight to the blind or his touch made the leper clean or how his touch made the young man come back to life or how his touch healed the woman with a discharge of blood from 12 years of uncleanliness. But more specific than that, friends, we need, we need the holy touch of the Lord that comes from the altar of atoning sacrifice. Accompanied by the eternal word of comfort that our guilt is taken away and our sin atoned for. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal. Note this: that he had taken with tongs from the altar. An encounter with the holy God necessarily brings us to a place where we acknowledge this need, not just for a healing touch, but for a atoning touch a touch that makes us right with God again. And as we acknowledge this, we find this fully fulfilled, wholly fulfilled in the perfect life, in the atoning death, and the continuing intercession of our Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, it therefore must be asked of us today, have you honestly acknowledged this need? Have you honestly acknowledged this need? And have you received this life-giving, atoning touch, of the Lord Jesus in your life. So far we've seen that a genuine encounter with the holiness of God is evidenced by the sobering honesty, experience of honesty about who we really are and the redemptive experience of honesty about what we really need. But a genuine encounter with the holiness of God also necessarily means that we experience an honest reevaluation of to whom we now belong to whom we now belong i would go as far as to say that it is impossible to genuinely have an encounter with the holiness of god which results in the first two experiences but lacks the third And I believe that Isaiah testifies to this. Read with me verses 8 to 11. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, this is what he said, Here I am. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, how long, O Lord? So after Isaiah's guilt is taken away and his sin atoned for by the touch of the burning coals, suddenly suddenly he can hear the voice of the Lord. In fact, the way the passage seems to read implies that the Lord was speaking all along. But because of Isaiah's sin, he was deaf to it. But now he hears the voice of the Lord. This is communion. This is relationship. And the Lord says, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? So now Isaiah's voice, once silenced by his own guilt, now springs forth with the reply of the redeemed. Here I am. Here I am. Send me. The the rumblings of the temple, the, the cries of the seraphim, now fade into the background as Isaiah hears the voice of the Holy One. And this is what I really want us to take notice of. Look at how a genuine encounter with the holiness of God inevitably results in a wholehearted desire to serve Him. His answer of, here am I, send me. It's a cry of surrender. It's a cry of laying down the very life that just has been redeemed in total service back to God. It's a cry of willingness to go to whomever To go wherever the Lord desires. Friends, Isaiah's cry of here am I, he's not telling the Lord his location. It's an outpouring of devotion to be used completely at the disposal of the Lord. He's basically saying, I'm here. I'm here, Lord. All of me. All for you. And what's really interesting, is how the Lord responds in describing the nature of his ministry that lies ahead for Isaiah. It's basically telling Isaiah that his prophetic ministry is one which will make people spiritually deaf and dull and blind and ignorant. In other words, the Lord is telling him that he will speak, he will teach, but they will not listen. They will not understand. In fact, your prophecies will make them duller, deafer and blinder than ever before. It's like telling a teacher on day one of their teaching degree that their career will be marked by much teaching, but it will only leave their students more ignorant. Or telling a doctor on the first day of training at hospital that they will do much consulting, but it will only make their patients sicker. In other words, Isaiah, your life, Your ministry will be one of failure and rejection by the world around you. But listen to Isaiah's simple and heartfelt reply. He doesn't say, oh, quit. He doesn't start looking for a career change or asking God for some other calling upon his life. No, he accepts his calling. And he simply asks, how long, O Lord? And don't, imp- don't misinterpret how long, O oh Lord, to be a sign of impatience or, 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 or a question of how long he has to endure in this job. In a single vision, put yourself in Isaiah's shoes for a minute. In a single vision, Isaiah has been wounded. He's been wounded and he's brought, been brought down to nothing, disintegrated, but then atoned for and then radically restored. And so his deepest longing now is for his very own people, the people of Judah, to also experience the same redemption that he has experienced. So he cries out, how long, not for himself, but for the people that he has been sent to. Church, see how Isaiah has taken his redeemed life that he was given and simply laid it back at the feet of the Lord. He's laid down his personal goals. He's laid down his personal ambitions. He's laid down his personal preferences. He's even laid down his personal expectations in total surrender to simply serve the Lord God who saved him. And so the question that I leave you with that must be asked at this point is whether this too is your experience? Church, have you had an honest re-evaluation of whom your life now belongs to? Are you surrendered to his will? Are you so sold out to the Lord, to the Holy One of Israel, that even failure and rejection from the world would not move you from the truth that you have been fully bought and paid for by the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ for service to Him and Him alone. Let me bring us to a close. I'm aware that um, Isaiah's testimony may leave us with the impression that an, an encounter with the holiness of God happens in like a single moment of time, like in a single vision. This may indeed be the, the case for some of us here, but that's not always the case. Many of us here has, have indeed had a genuine encounter with the holiness of God, but it happened over the course of months and even years. The pace at which this encounter with the Lord occurs is not what is important. Rather, the question that must be considered today is whether or not you've indeed had such an encounter at all. And such an encounter leaves us, cannot leave us unchanged. Instead, it leaves three indelible marks upon our lives. It leaves us honest about who we are. It leaves us honest about what we need. And it leaves us honest about to whom we now belong. Friends, we, um, we've got a time of prayer after the service today, a time to respond to all that we've heard. Perhaps today is the first time that you've had a genuine encounter with the holiness God. You now see the the horror of the sin, of your own sin, in the blazing light of his holy perfection. And you are ashamed of even the best of your works. But at the same time, you felt the touch of his holy love in your life, particularly as you behold and you look upon his holy, perfect son, crucified in your place upon the cross. If that is you, let me encourage you to come up and receive prayer. This is a sacred moment in your life. Don't let it rush by. Come and receive prayer, my friend. Perhaps for others of you, you've come to the realization that you've never had a genuine encounter with the holiness of God. You've heard stories about him. You've heard stories of people who have encountered him. But today there is a burning in your soul to have an encounter with him. Yes, the Lord is holy in his righteousness. Remember, he's also holy in his mercy and grace. Come and receive prayer today. Or perhaps there are some of you here who have indeed had a genuine experience of the holiness of God. This is very much your own experience, but you've forgotten for a moment that the life that he restored to you must be surrendered back to him. And today you want to renew your commitment to follow him completely. You want to live for him and him alone. Come, brother. Come, sister. Come and receive prayer at the end. Let us pray. Heavenly Father and gracious God, holy God, holy God, you are a holy God. And there is There's no way that we can walk away unchanged from an encounter with you. No way. You are a holy God. All we can do in response to you, to your holy righteousness and your holy love, is simply to give holy of our lives back to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.